Welcome to episode five of Pub Crawl, a publishing podcast about reading, writing, books, and occasionally booze. I'm your host, Kelly Van Sant. I am a contracts manager and a freelance editor. And I'm your co-host, S.J. Jones, called J.J. I'm an author and erstwhile editor. We are both contributors with the Publishing Crawl blog, and together we have over 15 years of industry experience. Today's topic is publication and beyond. Woohoo! So, publication and beyond, we decided to cover this, um, just sort of what happens after a book gets published, because there's not a lot of stuff about that. Um, Obviously, there's a lot of literature on the blogosphere about everything kind of leading up to the point when your book comes out. Editing Mm -hmm. and representation and and querying and, and even some process things like you know, getting your copy edits or seeing your galleys or arcs, things like that. But there isn't a lot of stuff that talks about what happens after the book gets published. Uh, so I, I think the best way to start this is probably just explaining what the life cycle of a book is. Um, mm-hmm. Because as much as we would like to believe that this would be so books don't necessarily stay in print forever. No, sadly they do not. Um, unfortunately, like many things, it just has a lot of, you know, ha- books just have expiration dates. Um, so, and it's, and it's not a bad thing necessarily to, to have books go out of print. Um, with any luck, you are continuing to publish and you're not relying on just one story uh, for uh-huh. the rest of your life. Although, some authors have indeed done that, but you know, like um, the point is, your career is your career. You should be continuing to move forward and and moving on, as opposed to just resting on the laurels of your previous book. So, after publication, um, you know, also to explain, there are a couple of ways to be published in print. First, mm-hmm. there is hardcover, trade paperback, and mass market paperback. And what is the difference between trade paperback and mass market paperback? Um, Well, it's actually uh, a number. There are a number of differences, but the obvious physical difference between mass market and trade paper is the size. If you trade trade paperback and and the price point, that's the other one. Trade paperback is generally uh, five by eight, five inches by eight inches, and the paper quality is a little bit higher. Mm -hmm. And generally, these retail. Uh, if it's children's, it's generally nine ninety nine, and if it's an adult trade paperback, it's generally like fourteen ninety nine or fifteen ninety nine. Mm-hmm. Uh, mass market is, uh, I believe, the trim is like, it's smaller. It's like, I don't know what the exact inches are, but you see them at the airport, mm-hmm. at the supermarket, um, any of these sort of quote mass market retailers like Walmart. Mm-hmm. Costco, um, a lot of romance novels and uh, genre thrillers are category thrillers are published in mass market first. Mm-hmm. They're those that smaller, chunkier book. Mm-hmm. Um, in and the type's usually smaller, but the the trim size is what you would see the little racks at like CVS or at the drugstore. Sometimes you'll see them up there. Mm-hmm. So the the format 
which format, print format, your book gets published in is actually determined by the publisher. Um, and it, it all depends on what genre you're publishing in because most romance novels, and I'm a little bit more familiar with romance in terms of mass market publishing than other categories, but romance novels often get published in mass market first. Mm-hmm. Um, and all then trade paperback, those that get published in trade paperback first, that determination can also be somewhat arbitrary, but sort of these kind of mid-list commercial books or women's fiction or historical fiction novels can, women's historical fiction novels can be published in trade paperback initially. Mm-hmm. Um, and then lead titles, um, a lot, most children's fiction actually, except for the extremely commercial YA, also gets published in hardcover. Um, there are multiple reasons for that. Anytime a book is published in hardcover, it's considered uh, a lead title, uh, and there's kind of a second life after hardcover, because after you've published it in hardcover, the following year you see the book often come out in paperback, trade paperback. Right. And if it's an extremely popular title, you can also see that then come out in mass market. Mm-hmm. Um, but hardcover, the reason actually children's books are published in hardcover is to, really often to do with the library market. Yes. The libraries are unable to take trade paperbacks. I mean, these are physical books in circulation. And, you know, if you have a trade paperback at the library and it goes through maybe three or four hands, it's going to fall apart immediately. So hardcover has more wear. um, So most libraries will stock hardcovers. And even if books are published in mass market or trade paperback initially, um, sometimes the publisher will print a special library edition for mm-hmm. sale into the libraries only. Um, so that's just sort of the different formats your your book can be published in. So your book gets published in print. It's out in the world for, uh, we'll say a year. Um, it, it's, it's so hard these days to say, to really quantify what is a successful title. Mm-hmm how long it's on the shelves for, how many copies it sells for. It all depends on what the advance was, what the publisher expectations are. But the reason there's a lot of push or build up towards publication day is because it's just the way the print markets work. Barnes and Noble will take X number of copies and, you know, within three or four months, um, just kind of really push them on their shelves and then they rotate those out for the next crop and the next season of books that come out. So the the life cycle of a book can be as short as maybe two or three months to several years. Mm-hmm. And those are all sort of unknown factors that we don't know. It has it often has to do with buzz, how much the booksellers love it and how much they're pushing it to their customers. Um, word of mouth, obviously will sell a lot of copies, the the press it gets in publicity and marketing. So this is all sorts of stuff that we want to try and cover a little bit or touch on very lightly today. The, I want to talk a little bit about the sort of part that doesn't really get talked about is once the initial wave 
I guess, after publication, the initial wave of books and things start to peter off a little bit, there's something that happens to your book. Uh, it, get, it gets remaindered. Ah, uh, remaindered. Yes. Um, now, this isn't talked about all that often because it's a little bit hard to explain if you're not actually in publishing. And it is not something you brag about or really talk about all that much. <laughs> no, it's kind of, um, it can be a precursor to your book going out of print. Um, you know, when things wind down, uh, and you know, kind of the sales life of your book has ended, it might get remaindered, uh, before officially going out of print. Um, not every book gets remaindered. Um, but what remainders, what remaindering is when a book gets remaindered, what happens is that, um, the sales have slowed significantly. The publisher isn't really able to move those books anymore. And books are stored in a warehouse and the warehouses are huge. Uh, but no matter how big they are, there's still a finite amount of space and shelves. And if your book is sitting and taking up those shelves and not selling and not going anywhere, it's not worth the cost of that space. The publisher has other books that they need to house in the warehouse that are selling. And, and so things just kind of have to move along. Um, and so the publisher will sell your book to retailers at what essentially is a loss. Um, they're trying to recoup some manufacturing costs, but a lot of times they're not even, you know, breaking even on what it costs to produce each book. They're selling them at a like cents on the dollar, very, very, very low price. Um, because the publisher is taking a loss on those sales, you as the author will also take a loss on those sales. Most of the time you will not get royalties, uh, paid on remaindered books. Well, you do. Um, it, well, at least in, in my contract, you'll see it's under high discount remainder mm -hmm. or other, other specialties. You will have a royalty rate. It's just not going to be your standard royalty rate. That's true. So more and more publishers now are, um, giving a royalty on remainders. It's, it is, significantly lower than what your normal royalty would be. Um, so, you know, that is kind of a bummer too. Um, but what also happens when your book gets remaindered is that you as the author are given the option to purchase remaining stock before it goes, um, to retailers. So your publisher will usually write you a letter that says your book is about to be remaindered. Um, we can sell you as many books as you like at a certain price and they'll give you a price even beyond your author discount. So in your contract, it will usually say the author can purchase books for, you know, at 50% or something, there'll be an author discount so that you're not paying full price for your book. If you want to buy some through your publisher, when your book gets remaindered, they'll try to sell you some of the stock and it will be for an even a significantly lower discount than the one that you're already granted. Generally remaindered books, the author can purchase them anywhere from like a dollar 25 per book mm -hmm. to maybe about a little under $2 per book. So it's, it's pretty cheap. Now, the other thing about being remaindered is that, you know, it's just basically the publisher is 
clearing out their warehouses to make room for new stock. But even New York Times bestsellers, even bestselling authors do have their books remaindered. Oh, know? yes. If, if even we'll take John Green, we'll pluck John Green out of the air. Uh, <laughs> um, I don't believe The Fault in Our Stars is selling in hardcover anymore, or at least the original edition is not selling in hardcover anymore. Um, I think special editions in hardcover, and, and it's mostly having a big trade paperback life right now. Mm-hmm. So when it, his publisher decided that it was time to push The Fault in Our Stars out in trade paperback, it's likely, of course, I don't know John Green personally, and I don't know what his publishing life is like, aside from what I kind of can glean through his Vlogbrothers videos. Um, he likely also had the option to purchase remaining stock mm-hmm. of the hardcover of The Fault in Our Stars. Um, so, you know, it, it happens, you know, and you'll see this too. Um, you know, there's a hardcover edition of a book, and the paperback of that book is coming out, and that usually means that the hardcover sales have quieted down enough to the point where it's likely going to be remaindered. Mm -hmm. This doesn't necessarily mean that you're going out of print though. Right. It's just that one specific edition. Mm -hmm. Because your book may have another life in the next edition that gets published, um, either in trade paperback or reprint of something or, you know, there are many, many, your book can still have a long shelf life in other forms. Mm-hmm. Um, but just remainder just means, hey, this particular version of the book is not selling at, or it's, you know, the sales have just quieted down. So, hey, we just got to make some room in our warehouse. Do you want to purchase some copies? Um, and if you, and the thing you can do with those copies is you can direct sale those, sell those yourself. Yes. Um, you know, if you decide, you know, it comes down to it and your book is getting remaindered and so, okay, I'm going to buy a hundred copies of my book. And, you know, if you're going out to an event or something and somebody wants to purchase the hardcover of your book, you can sell it to them directly Mm -hmm. (laughs) um, and not have to worry about the bookstore or things like that. So, and, and if you go to bookstores and you see kind of the sales tables, Right. Those are mm-hmm. remaindered books. Yep. When you walk in to a bookstore and there's those tables, you know, right up the, at the front by the cash register with just tons and tons of books on them. Um, yeah, those are the remaindered books. So, and that that's basically what remainder is. But I want to talk a little bit more actually about going out of print. Mm-hmm. Now, I did actually, after we did our contracts episode, I did actually look at my contract again. <laughs> oh, um, just to see what the OOP clause is. And mm-hmm. it isn't necessarily a number, or at least in mine, it isn't necessarily the number of print books sold in a year. It's the amount of monies received. So right. Mm-hmm. That, which makes more sense now in the age of digital, um, because your book can still be selling, I don't know, like 50 digital copies a week. But mm-hmm. if you are making less than X amount of dollars per year, or if the publisher is receiving less than X amount of dollars per year from the sales of your book, then it does constitute out of print. Mm-hmm. And you will know that because that you'd get your royalty statements twice yearly that would mm-hmm. tell you how much money your book had earned. So, and we can cover royalties in a different uh, different episode because they are oh god extremely <laughs> complicated. And the other problem with royalties is that it does differ. 
very much yes. from house yes. to house. Mm-hmm. And, and from and book e- to book. And from <laughs> book to book. And honestly, even an accountant may not be able to help you <laughs> because they're just... <laughs> that's so particular to publishing that sometimes the account will look, the accountant will look at it and just be like, what on earth is this? Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. um, it's the same thing with lawyers. Like if you try to have a lawyer review your publishing contract, but they're not like an entertainment lawyer, they're just going to look at it and be like, what even is this? (laughs) Publishing is a very special industry. I've definitely worked with um, authors who are represented by lawyers rather than agents. And the negotiation process took so long, mm-hmm. so it's long. A, it's a very different universe. <laughs> so, yes. So yes. yeah, royalties. Some other day. Not. I haven't. I. I. I haven't had enough alcohol yet to talk about. Yeah. <laughs> to talk about royalties today. Yeah, and honestly, I. I don't know if I, I. We may need to pull somebody in who specializes in royalties because. Yeah, I we might need to have a guest speaker. Yeah, I don't think I'll be able to help very much. (laughs) I mean, I understand it to the extent that it's in the contract language, so I know what all of that means. But, you know, once you get beyond, like, the definitions of it, like how it all works out and is actually accounted for and all of that stuff, yeah, that's that's a little (laughs) bit beyond my reach. Uh, So, yeah, if you are a person who works in publishing and you know a lot about royalties, then uh, you should get in touch and we'll we'll have you on the podcast. (laughs) So that's kind of the life cycle of a book. It's published. It's on the shelves for a finite period of time. um, And then generally the book will probably get remaindered. And, you know, like I said, even after you remaindered, you still may be in print for mm-hmm. years after that. Oh, yeah. Um, and then at some point, then your book does go out of print, mm-hmm. at which point you should request your rights back. Yep. And what happens after your book goes out of print is you can now take this option, but take this opportunity to self-publish your book. Um, you get those rights back, so you'd be able to you know, publish your own e-edition of a book. Mm-hmm. If you would like to do it yourself, you can print copies of your book and sell them, or your agent may be able to sell them to a different publishing house mm-hmm. that may be able to give it another life. So, you know, when something goes out of print, doesn't necessarily mean it's the the forever end, especially in this digital day and age. You know, everything lives forever on the internet (laughs) and how we wish it didn't sometimes (sighs) i'm really glad like my middle school years i wasn't Uh really online yeah um aside from like reading fan fiction i'm sure i'm sure i was reading fan fiction in middle school but like i don't think i was using live journal or any blogging services until i was a little bit older yeah i was i was in college for all that and i mean i've i've gone back and read my live journal on rare occasions, I have it is so mortifying. It really, truly is. Oh wow, it's really. I, like, I think I went through and I locked all of those posts. I think oh, I'm like, I, yeah, that's smart. I should do that. It's like no one will be able to read these. Yeah, um, it's not good. It's not pretty. <laughs> and it, yeah, it. I mean, it's. It can be cute. I think or. Maybe to to see that part of myself kind of immortalized forever, mm-hmm. but um, yeah, no. Mm-mm. Anyway, 
So, yes. Um, yeah, in this digital day and age, you know, there will be some version. You can have some version of your book on sale forever. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and especially, uh, you know, if you're going ahead and you're writing another book and another book and you continue to publish, um, that helps your backlist. So mm-hmm. with every new book that you publish... There, it's going to generate another small bump of interest in your previous work because people will read your latest book and then say, oh, hey, I see that she published another book two years ago. I'm going to go pick that up and read that too because I really like this author. So, you know, you can get little bumps in your sales um, by continuing your career. That's what they say in publishing. Nothing sells nothing sells frontless like backlist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, and, and, and really in publishing, it's quantity and persistence that makes a successful career rather than quality or brilliance. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it's like any other business in, you know, the, the more you put out there, the, the more you put out and the more you diversify, it's like any other business, you know, mm-hmm. you have to keep, you have to just keep evolving, keep changing, keep moving forward and if you're in it for the long haul, that's that's what you should be doing. So, you know, there are definitely plenty of, of people, of, of authors that I love whose books have gone out of print, um, which is always kind of an interesting thing. You know, when I was longer, younger and I couldn't find certain books of Lloyd Alexander anymore on the shelves because they had gotten, they'd gone out of print. Um, and I, I remember this particularly because I was looking for a copy of the remarkable journey of Prince Jen to give to like a younger friend of mine mm-hmm. and it was out of print. <laughs> I was like, well, I can't get a copy. And I don't know if Lloyd Alexander's estate has sold the digital rights anywhere. I don't know if ebook is an ebook is available. Um, I mean, that's a whole other topic, mm-hmm. um, but you know, it, even even really well known, well respected authors definitely have books that go out of print. I oh, think for Stephen sure. King has. I mean, Stephen King is the definition of prolific, mm-hmm. um, and he's definitely had books go out of print as well, and 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 brought back from out of print too. <laughs> so, you know, the longer you are in the game and the more you produce, the better it, the likelier it is that you will have a successful career. So. That's kind of the life cycle of a book that I wanted to talk about post-publication. Now, there are many of other things that you would be doing post-publication. So everything leading up to publication is preparing to launch this physical product into the world. Mm-hmm. Everything after publication is then focused on getting the word out about your book. So this is where publicity will come in, but this is where you'll be doing a lot of work as well as, as an author, you will likely be asked to speak at various events, Mm -hmm. go to conferences, attend panels, um, give interviews Mm -hmm. and, you know, some of this will be publisher driven and honestly, some of it should be driven by you too. You know, if I think you should take an active interest in promoting your book after it's done. Uh, you know, why, why wouldn't you want to take an active interest in promoting your book? Right. (laughs) 
Um, so promotion is, is another thing authors don't really want to talk about sometimes because, you know, nobody wants to be the person on Twitter or Facebook or any of your social media platforms being like, Hey, look at me, buy my book. Yeah. Um, but you know, you want, especially there's so much information around these days, it can be easy to get lost and just, you know, have to be smart about going out there, putting yourself out there, putting the word about your book out there. And personally, I think the best way to do this is to make personal connections. Yes. The more people that you know that you have genuine connections with, and I mean, and it is genuine, you know, you can't just start following people on Twitter and then expect them to do favors for you, you (laughs) but you establish relationships with people. You know, I know a lot of authors join, um, debut groups, Mm -hmm. Authors who are all debuting in the same season or the same year um, will form private groups, you know, on Facebook or through email or through whatever to kind of support one another um, and talk about the process because you're all going through the same process at the same time um, and just kind of compare notes and have somebody who's who's there with you who really understands because I think publishing is such a unique experience and if you're in it kind of all alone, you kind of feel like you're speaking a different language from everyone else around you. And so it's really helpful to have a group of people who are experiencing the same thing that you are at the same time. And if you establish those kind of relationships with other debut authors, then, you know, you're all going to be cheerleading for each other. You're all going to be looking forward to everyone's publication days and sharing it on Twitter and talking about it and doing this and that and organizing blog tours with each other. And, you know, those kind of relationships can be really mutually beneficial and, um, just great on a personal level too. Mm -hmm. And I would also recommend just going to your local indie if you have one Mm -hmm. or even your local Barnes and Noble, you know, any, any physical bookstore has people selling books, you know, buyers who buy stock for that store, people who are on the floor selling books to people. I would, and, and your library, your local library as well. I would recommend that you go out and just make connections there. Talk to them. Um, you know, introduce yourself as a local author. But I honestly find the best way to make connections with these sellers and these people is just to talk about books. You're both bookish, you know. Oh, mm-hmm. I love this book. It doesn't have to be yours. Um, often, my my best bookish industry friends I've made because we bonded over shared love of I don't know Robin McKinley or you know, authors that we loved. And, you know, I'm not talking about my book and I'm not talking about their book if they happen to be authors. It's just our shared love of certain books, certain authors. And I think that's the best way to go out and make connections is, Mm -hmm. you know, introduce yourself. And I know it's hard for a lot of us because we're, you know, by nature, this this business appeals to a lot of introverts. (laughs) (laughs) But it, it really, I think the personal connection aspect really will help in, in your promotion. No, I mean, I feel like people can tell immediately when you're just a shill for your own product. Yes. And that makes you less likely to buy the product. At least that's, that's me. No, I would agree with that. You want people to be genuine. Yeah. You, you want their, you know, this, you know, they're selling not just the book, they're selling 
themselves to you. They're selling a brand to you, essentially. Mm-hmm. And we can go talk about that later as well, like your author brand and and th- how that's really should be separate from you as a person. <laughs> mm-hmm. But we can get to that later. But, you know, being a shill for your own work, ultimately it always feels so hollow. And at least I find it very annoying if I'm on Twitter. And <laughs> I will have to admit this. There was this one particular book that I kept seeing promoted tweets for on Twitter. And it annoyed me so much that I muted the author. I just couldn't stand it. I mm-hmm. And I felt not an ounce of regret, actually. <laughs> Because it it just, that's all I ever saw. That's all I ever saw was, look at this book. Look at this book. Isn't this, you know, buy this book. It's, and the sadder part is, is that if it wasn't so hollow, I might have actually bought it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That, that, if, yeah. It, if I'd it, seen it on the shelves, based on the premise alone, I might have picked it up and bought it. Mm-hmm. But because I just kept seeing it over and over again and I saw nothing else. I just saw basically what right. was an advertisement. Right. It would have been different if I saw the author engage with other people, if I saw the author basically do anything except promote this book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> buy it, buy it, buy it. I, you know what? That just convinced me not to buy it. Mm-hmm. It convinced me to mute you so I never have to see this promoted tweet again. And that's mm-hmm. the opposite reaction. I think uh, of what that author was going for. Yeah, you are not, you know, you're not a walking advertisement, um, or, or you shouldn't be anyway, mm-hmm. a walking <laughs> advertisement. And you know, especially on social media, I think more and more now people follow authors on social media um, less and less to get updates or information about their work and more and more to follow the author as a person to see, you know, what they're doing or what they're working on or what they ate for breakfast that morning or what they saw on their walk yesterday, you know, like just the personal bits and pieces and flotsam and jetsam that, you know, we all put out on the internet on our social media because it makes authors seem like real people and I mean, you are, you're real people and your readers like to connect with you on that level. They're fans of your work. They kind of want to peek into the person who created that work. Um, and so people don't follow writers, you know, just to get the latest update on when their book is going to be published and you should buy it, you should buy it. I mean, that information is important too, and you should share that information, but you have to have more depth, um, to your social media feeds that are public, that are accessible to your readers. Um, cause I think more and more, that's the kind of content that people are searching for. And the other thing is, I don't actually think social media sells books. No, I don't either. I think, I think social media would array, would raise awareness of a book, mm-hmm. but I don't think that's actually the point. And in fact, if you are on social media only to sell your product, then I don't think you're doing it right. no. No, That's and I know it's hard. Anyway. I know it's hard because I know that a lot of times your publisher will say to you, like, so are you on Twitter? So do you have a, you know, whatever? Because they want you to have that, that platform. And so a lot of writers think, oh, you know, geez, I better get going on this. And you don't really know what to do with it. Um, and that's, 
legit. Like I myself, I'm still trying to figure out Twitter. <laughs> I, I feel like I'm slowly getting better, but I've had Twitter for something like, I don't know, like six years now. Um, and it's, I mean, it is not my, my strong suit, but I feel like as I step into it more and engage with people more and follow people and have conversations that I can contribute to on Twitter, that has kind of opened it up for me and, and made me start to understand it more. I would not call myself an expert Twitter user, but you know, I'm a lot better than I was like even just a year ago. Um, so I get that intimidation. I get how you feel like, Oh God, I started this thing cause I had to start it to make myself visible. And now I don't know what to say. And now I don't know what to do. Um, and you just kind of panic and you're like, buy my book. <laughs> so I get that. I get that. But you know, rein it in a little bit. And you don't have to be on social media if it doesn't make you comfortable. I'm a big no. proponent of that. I think if this is just not your thing and you dread using it or you don't know what to do or, you know, then, then don't bother. Don't, don't use it. Don't, you sh- do what makes you comfortable. Mm-hmm. Uh, you don't, you know, don't stretch yourself, you know, don't kill yourself to do all these promotional things because promotion, you know, nobody knows with a hundred percent certainty what works and what doesn't for one. So I think you should really do what you enjoy. Mm -hmm. So if you like being on Twitter or Tumblr, which are my two biggest social media things, I love Twitter and I love Tumblr. Um, so if I'm on them constantly and, um, so I enjoy those and I don't necessarily use them for any sort of promotional purposes. I just, I just like it. Um, mostly because on Tumblr, I've fallen down the Hamilton fandom Oh my God. (laughs) Hamilton is is still a thing, everybody. Yeah. Still (laughs) happening. You guys, it's still going to be happening for a while. Anyway. Um, you know, so I'm on, I'm on Tumblr for, for myself. I'm not on it for anything aside from, you know, Mm reblogging funny things or, um, following bookish Twitter or bookish Tumblr because bookish Tumblr will, you know, recommend books, review books. Mm -hmm. Um, and Twitter I like because Twitter is, as I'd mentioned before, it's it's sort of like publishing's water cooler. So mm-hmm. it's, you know, just a place to talk to people. I mostly use it as a platform to talk to people. I don't really use it as a platform mm-hmm. for my own tweets, necessarily. I mostly use it to follow people, to see what conversations they're having, what they're talking about, and... Twitter is actually where I get my news. Yes. Uh, most of the time. <laughs> and Twitter is actually much better about getting my news to me than any of my like news apps or the Associated Press or CNN or anything like that. So Twitter is usually much faster. Um, at least it is for me. So, mm-hmm. you know, I, that's what I use it for. I use it as a social tool, as a social tool. I don't use it as a promotion tool. Now, if I'm on Twitter or Tumblr and I see people promote their book events or their, their books coming out or whatever, I don't mind again, as long as it isn't the only thing that they do. Uh-huh. And there are plenty of people who I follow on Twitter who or Tumblr whose books I haven't bought or read, but I just follow them because I like them. And even if I haven't read their book personally, sometimes I am likely to recommend their books to other people because based on what I've 
follow, I know that my friend may like their book. Mm -hmm. And honestly, I think that right there is the key. I think what leads to the most sales is word of mouth. I think Mm -hmm. that, you know, and a lot of things can contribute to word of mouth, certainly advertising and reviews and, you know, all kinds of stuff can feed into word of mouth. But if I am going to pick up a book and read it, and it's not a book that, you know, I've been anticipating, like the sequel to something or an author that I'm already familiar with, um, it's because somebody else said to me, hey, you should read this book. Um, and I really think that word of mouth is so powerful and that's the, I, I truly think that's what drives people to buy books. Again, I'm going to, I'm going to liken this to any other business or small business. You know, you're going to go with something that has already been vetted by a friend or someone, you know, so, you know, for example, say I want to get some work done around my house, mm-hmm. you know, I need to fix my roof. I'm going to ask my friends first, you know, do you have a contractor that you've used before? You know, if you have, can I have their name? You know, the word of mouth applies in every business situation. And it's really the same thing with books. It's very rare that you're going to pick up a book that has not been vetted in some way, mm-hmm. either by a publisher or the because you're familiar with the author or because an author that you're familiar with has blurbed that book or a friend that you, whose reading taste that you trust has told you to read it, mm-hmm. you know, this sort of, that's the word of mouth that, you know, it, you're, you're, it's very unlikely, you know, as I said, in business too, that you're just going to open up the yellow pages and just like close your eyes and pick one, right. pick, a, pick a contractor. You, well, I mean, you can certainly, but <laughs> and sometimes you do. You want to do a little bit more research, and and sometimes you definitely do. But and maybe you luck out, maybe you don't. So you know, hearing the vetting mm-hmm. come from your friends and family, and people you know, and other trusted sources. It doesn't necessarily have to be people you know directly. The word of mouth can come from book blogs that you follow. Mm-hmm. If they've reviewed a title, and there are definitely a lot of book bloggers who I do follow. Uh, who I, I read their blogs and reviews. And over the years, I've kind of culled my blog list down to bloggers whose tastes I know are similar to mine. Mm-hmm. Or if they disagree with me, their reasons make sense to me. Even if I disagree with their ultimate right. you know, review, their reasons still make mm-hmm. sense. Like, okay, I know why they didn't like it. Even if I didn't care or I liked it anyway the reasons that they like it makes they dislike it makes sense to me too. And I, I've called that down and I would consider them on my list of trusted sources of what books to read mm-hmm. next. So that's kind of post publication promotion remainder. Um, I'm trying to think if there's anything else sort of after the life of the book that we want to cover. You should be writing during this time as well. Yes, you should be writing. There'll be like an initial flurry of activity, you know, right around the pub date of your book. Um, You know, that would be most likely when any interviews would take place or any events would take place would probably be, you know, close to that publication date within the first month or two. Um, But after that, it's kind of like a machine that 
is just going to keep on chugging all by itself. And you, you know, check in every now and then. And, you know, if you're asked to do things, then consider whether or not you're interested in doing them by all means. But after that initial excitement, uh, when your book just starts, you know, doing its own thing, uh, you need to get to work on your next project. If you haven't already been working on it, you need to start it. And if you have started it, then you should be plugging away at it still. So like I said, that nothing sells frontless like backlist. Mm-hmm. And the other way also goes is nothing sells backlist like frontlist either. <laughs> a new book will always bump up the sales of your backlist. Um, you know, having something new out and says, you know, this book, this, because a lot of attention is always focused on the new books coming out. So if you have written a book and it gets published and you've written another book and that gets published, then the second book can be like, this author has also written X title and Mm -hmm. people who have enjoyed this book may go out and search out whatever else you've written. Um, you know, I, I've definitely done that with authors whose books that I've found that I've read that I've liked and be like, I wonder what else that they've written. Um, sometimes this works out very well. And sometimes this works out kind of horribly. Like I have read everything by Tracy Chevalier. (laughs) Um, and I loved, loved the girl with the pearl earring, loved that book. I have not loved any of her other books, (laughs) but I've read them all. (laughs) I bought them and I've read them all. Mm -hmm. So, you know, <laughs> I I have authors like that too, where there's one that you love and then you just keep coming back. You hope that that author's gonna strike that sweet spot for you a second time. So yeah, and, and keep some, coming back. In some you just buy, and some are can be kind of inconsistent. Like this book has hit it so well for me, and the next book not so much. But then the following book is really great. It and brings then, it back, yeah. yeah. And the next book, not so much. And you're just like, oh, God, why can't you just be consistent? It's and such an abusive relationship. <laughs> yeah, the emotional relationship you have with some author brands. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking brands, not people here. We're talking about Right, right, right. It's brand. a very different thing. Very different <laughs> thing. Not personal. Mm-mm. Um, oh, and while we're, while we're at it, I want to talk a little bit about the New York times bestseller list. I did a lot of reading about that even beyond what I, I did because I knew we were going to talk about it on this podcast. And so, you know, I, I have a basic understanding of the New York times bestseller list because I work in publishing and I read books. Um, but I wanted to read more about it because it's notoriously so secretive, complicated and strange and like bizarrely, it just seems strange bizarre. And the more that I read about it and the more research I did, the more it just seemed like just, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) so yeah. Oh, okay. So the New York times bestseller list is obviously like the, the top of the mountain, right? It's like what every writer wants to achieve and it's, and your publisher wants to be able to slap that little, yeah. um, medallion on the front, you know, yep. <laughs> like, or, or, or in the, um, in the blurb space, you know, New York times bestseller or and on all of your future books, always, always a bestseller on all your future books. It will say from the New York times bestselling author, mm-hmm. you know, whoever, you know, that is forever, man. Even um, and never so, hit the list again. It doesn't matter. It doesn't you matter. did that one you time. You hit it once, so you will forever be New York Times bestselling author. Mm-hmm. It's really crazy. I mean, it's amazing. It's amazing. Um, and and even with all the things that I learned about how twisted and bizarre 
the New York Times bestseller list really is underneath everything. Um, it still doesn't diminish the awe for me. I'm like, I'm still like, yeah, but it's the New York Times bestseller list. Um, it's so funny how much weight we put on it because it's not even an indication of the most amount of copies sold. No. And isn't that mind blowing? I, I bet like tons of listeners heads just exploded on that. The people who make the New York Times bestseller list are not necessarily the people who have sold the most books. Yes. Um, the better indication of, of that is probably the USA bestseller list. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I'll explain a little bit the kind of differences between these lists because the calculation that goes into each of them. And they're, they're obviously multiple lists. Like there's the USA Today, their, their bestselling list, Publishers Weekly, BookScan, New York Times, Washington Post. Uh, mm-hmm. There's, you know, anyone can have a bestselling list, to be honest. Amazon has bestsellers. Amazon lists. bestsellers as well. But for some reason, the New York Times bestselling list it's has the most importance placed on it. Um, but the New York Times tracks books in a number of different locations, number of different bookstores. No one knows exactly which bookstores, although if you work in publishing long enough, you can kind of guess which bookstores Mm -hmm. are the ones being tracked. Um, And book titles get tracked. Now, this is kind of insider baseball, but... Sometimes a book will outsell a title on the New York Times bestseller list, but because the the Times wasn't told to track said title, it won't make the list. Mm-hmm. Like it is, it is extremely complicated, and no one knows why the New York Times is built this way. Also, because mm-hmm. there's a million New York Times bestseller lists. There's the uh, oh my god! Yeah, there's like the fiction hardcover, the nonfiction hardcover, the fiction trade paperback, the nonfiction trade paper paperback, the mass market, the ebook, and this is just like advice and how tos, yeah. and, and they all have a different number of spots. Mm-hmm. They don't all have the same number of spots. I think it's like the YA list has like 15, and the fiction hardcover has I think either 20 or 25. I can't remember exactly, but they all vary in number of spots. So it's harder to get on some lists than it is on others because there's less spots available. Well, YA has only just recently reconfigured. It's yes, that's very lists. new because before that it was just children's and then it was, mm-hmm. and it was all formats. So it was mm-hmm. trade paperback, ebook, hardcover, and it also included middle grade and picture books. Um, so basically what that meant was that it was basically the John Green list all the time for like four or five years. It was just right. all of John Green's books taking up the top five spots, top tens, like in the top ten. Mm-hmm. Um, but they've broken that out since. So now it, children's gets YA hardcover, YA paperback, YA series, children's series. Sorry. It, that includes middle grade the series bestseller list and, mm-hmm. um, ebook and ebook, I think only has five and five. So five YA and five middle grade. Um, but they have since reconfigured the children's list as well. But I mean, the children's New York Times bestseller list didn't even exist until Harry Potter, 
because mm-hmm. and only then because Harry Potter was taking up all of the regular fiction list and you yep. know that was just all that was on there all the yep. time and it was, just it was the like Harry Potter the show five Harry Potter books that were released time. at the time and I, re- I actually remember that I remember getting um Publishers Weekly email updates about the changes at the New York Times bestseller list and what was going on because Harry Potter was just destroying everything. (laughs) (laughs) The one thing Harry Potter ever destroyed. The New York Times bestseller list. The purity of the New York Times bestseller list. (laughs) And now we have this mess to deal with. Um, But yeah, so I mean, it's really... uh, And then like you have things that can really skew it too. So like... If a celebrity memoir is released on a given week, it's automatically going to sell millions of copies and it's going to skew the list. So a book that might otherwise have really high sales might not make it on the list that week, whereas it would have made it under any other circumstance. And then another book that's sold significantly less on a week where there is no big celebrity release will get on the bestseller list, even though it's sold less copies than another book. Like, it's just all strange. (laughs) Yeah, because it's relative. It's week by week, and it measures Mm -hmm. sales velocity, not sales volume. So you can hit the the times list one week and not hit the following week, Mm -hmm. because you just may not have sold, sold as many copies relative to all the other books being sold in the country. So it's not a measure of of books sold because there are actually books that have never hit the New York Times bestseller list that have actually sold more copies over the entire span of its print life than a New York Times bestseller. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, these are, you know, and I'm going to throw arbitrary numbers out there. These are not going to be real numbers because nobody knows what the real numbers are. <laughs> Plus they change from week to week. But for example, let's say to hit the list, you need to sell... 10,000 copies in a week. Um, you may sell 10,000 copies in one week and never hit the list ever again because the following week you've sold 2,000 copies, 7,000 copies, you know, and it just may not be enough to ever hit the list again. Um, and you may have wildly consistent sales, you know, so maybe one week you've sold 100 copies, the following week mm-hmm. you've sold 1,000 copies. Um, and over time that will sort of, you know, even out obviously, but then there are books that every week sell 5,000 copies. It's not enough to hit the list, but over time that those consistent sales add up Mm -hmm. and over time they may have ended up sold like a million copies and have never actually hit the list. So again, this New York times bestseller, any bestseller list is a measure of sales velocity just how many are sold one week relative to all the other books being sold that particular week. Basically, all those book sales are being graded on a curve. Mm-hmm. That's, that's, just what it, that's just what it is. <laughs> it's not like you're the <laughs> solid performer. It's, it's just you're being graded on a curve. Your book sales are being graded mm-hmm. on a curve. So as wonderful as it would be to hit the New York Times bestseller list, I would not put it on your bucket list of publishing things. Uh, because you have no control no, over that. You have no control over it. There's nothing that you can do to to ensure that that happens for the most part. Unless you're 
you know, a billionaire. If you do some Googling, you can find articles on like how to buy your way onto the New York Times yes, bestseller they list. Are wiser and getting wiser and wiser to those tactics these days. They are. They are. And it's really hard to do for fiction. I mean, it's much easier to do for small little niche things that are where the categories of the lists are different and whatever. And, and, and it is getting much harder to do now. And like a couple months ago, there was that, it was a Republican politician who had written a memoir I can't remember which politician it was, um, but he ne- he did not hit the list because ultimately they I guess they did research into it and they found that they were the term for this is actually called creating man-made lakes, where he had gotten his followers to go out and purchase like hundreds of books at a time from the bookstore to ensure that he would hit the bestseller list. And, you know, when, when whoever's building these lists are looking at the data and they see that, they, you know, this is the area where the constituents live and it's one person is buying like a hundred books at a time. That's when they're going to be like, eh, I think this is not an org, quote, organic, you know, uh-huh. sales process. So we're going to exclude this book from the list. And that's exactly what happened to that politician. <laughs> Them's the breaks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so yeah, as, as nice as it would be to have that, you know, prefixing your name on all of your books in the future, hitting the New York Times bestseller list or any bestseller list, you just you don't have any control. Yeah. So um, it's it's a nice it's a nice thing to dream about, but it's not something you would put on your list like I'm going to work towards that mm-hmm. because you may not be able to control it and. And it's not the only measure of success. There are tons no. of successful authors um, with long and wonderful careers who have never been bestsellers. And, you know, ultimately, when it comes down to it, monetarily, if we want to get cold, hard, and mercenary here, you want to be the one that sells 5,000 copies a week and never hits the list. Yes. But sells, yeah, that's consistency. Mm-hmm. And over time, that, that matters. builds up a lot mm-hmm. more. It, it all builds up, so... All right. I think more or less that comes, that's the end of our uh, publication and beyond. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I don't know if, if you guys have any other questions. You can ask us about the New York Times bestseller list, but I can't promise that we'll actually have any better answers than what we gave you. <laughs> we don't work for the um, New York Times, unfortunately. So No, and, and I don't know anyone who does. Neither do um, I, actually. So. I know. I don't, I don't actually know anyone who works there. Um, but... So we, I think you can, as I said, you can ask us questions and maybe we'd be able to get answers, but it wouldn't be coming from us directly because we don't really have much to say on it. <laughs> I mean, if I had my way, if I had my list of best-selling titles, then it would just be all the stuff that I like. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> Which is basically what I do. I always say to JG, what should I read right now? And then she tells me what to read and then I read it. That is, again, the word of mouth. Um, yes, I, I am the world's biggest book pusher. If you, if you've got something that you are like, I don't know what I want to read. I was like, Oh, I've got a list of like 25 titles. What do you want? <laughs> I got something for everyone. So moving on, um, what have you read recently? What have I read? Oh, um, I'm still in the middle of drafting. So I'm not actively reading anything new. But um, the past couple of weeks, some of uh, the Publishing Crawl alums have had their books mm-hmm. come out. 
uh, Lee Bardugo's Six of Crows and Marie Lou's The Rose Society. And I got both of those, and I'm working my way through them. I'm working my way through The Rose Society. I actually read that, you know, I'm Marie's critique partner, so I read that before it was published, but I always like to read the finished copy as well. And is that a sequel to Young Elites? Mm-hmm. It's a, it's a trilogy, so it's book Oh, okay. Two. I've got Young Elites is on my library hold list, so I uh, haven't read it yet. I'm reading Six of Crows on audio at the gym. Um, it's really good. Again, that's something I read before it was published. But I read that in galley form, but um, I... Her books are really great on audio, Lee's books. I really love her narrator. And for Six of Crows, I think there's six different narrators because there are six POVs. Um, So it's a different narrator kind of reading the different chapters. It is a heist novel, so if you guys like heist novels, I would recommend it. It's set in the same universe as the Grisha books, but it's set in a different country. So it's not set in Ravka. Um, It's set in Ketterdam, which is kind of a Amsterdam inspired place. Um, so it's, it's really, really good. Um, and, uh, it's, it's heisty and I I like that. Like I go to the gym and I'm listening to it and they're planning to, to steal. Well, they're actually planning to steal a person, but, Mm -hmm. um, (laughs) I, I just love it. And that kind of oceans 11 kind of vibe to it. So, um, so that's, that's what I'm reading. I also, um, have Rainbow Rowell's newest Carry On. Um, I got a hardcover of Queen of Shadows by Sarah J. Moss. I have I had it on audio, but I got the hardcover. And uh, another book called The Weight of Feathers by Anna Marie McLemore. I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly. It could be McLemore. Um, but this is a magical realism novel. Um, about these two like circus performer families, one with scales and the other one with feathers, kind of a Romeo and Juliet esque story. Hmm. So that's I haven't started it yet, but it's it's on my pile of books that I have bought mm-hmm. <laughs> or acquired somehow. So what are you reading? I spent the whole weekend blowing through two books, actually, which um, was not previously impressive. My my superpower is that I read incredibly fast. Um, I I read super, super fast. But uh, life has just, you know, it's just exploded, guys. Um, And I just don't (laughs) get that reading time anymore. So no matter how fast I read, I feel like I'm always, you know, just reading like one book a week or something. but I blew through, which is really fast for most other it people. Is. By I the know. Way. Sorry, I know everyone is like, ah, who cares? Um, but I'm used <laughs> to reading like a book a day sometimes too, like with a full time job and all that other stuff. I read really fast. Um, but I blew through two books this weekend in and around, you know, doing all my life stuff and and dealing with toddler tantrums and whatnot. Um, and I read The Burning Sky and the Perilous Sea by Sherry Thomas. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I, I really enjoyed them. I, you know, um, they were just quick, enjoyable reads. Like they, they didn't change my life, but they were fantastic. And I loved every minute that I spent reading them. Um, and I think that 
the final book in the series actually came out this week, <laughs> which I didn't yeah. know. I didn't know. I had asked on Twitter several months ago, I had asked, um, for recommendations for, uh, more diverse books because, um, you know, my bookshelves are heavily skewed white and male. And, uh, I really wanted more diverse voices to, I wanted to read more diverse books. And so I'd put out this call on Twitter and, um, people have been getting back to me and I've been slowly working my way through, um, all of their recommendations. And Sherry Thomas was one of them. And, uh, I didn't get any specific book recommendations. Someone just told me to read her. And I guess she's written, um, a lot of romance novels, uh, which are not generally my thing. I don't read a lot of romance novels, although I really like romances in books. Um, so I think Sherry Thomas is actually going to be my first foray into reading actual romance novels because the two books that I read were YA fantasy. And my favorite thing about them was the romance. Um, yeah, I just, she's really I just loved the romance between the two characters and, um, you know, everything else for me, I was like, Psh, whatever, but, <laughs> but I love the romance and I've heard that she writes phenomenal romance novels. And so, um, I think that I'm going to, I think I'm going to broaden my horizons even further. And, uh, and, and read some of those because, um, I just loved the way that she wrote. It was just great. Super entertaining. It was awesome. She, she's good. Uh, I'm not really a romance reader either. Although I follow a lot of romance blogs. Um, I think the romance community is fantastic. Uh, there's a blog called smart bitches, trashy books. I love that blog. I love that blog so much. Um, and they also have their own podcast. Um, so which I would recommend that if you guys are readers of romance and I, I enjoy those podcasts as well. Uh, dear author is another one. Um, and I, I, I'm not a romance reader myself. The very first romance novel I ever read was, <laughs> I still remember it cause it's seared into my brain is, um, the Raider by Jude Devereaux. <laughs> Let me explain this to you because it's kind of the most amazing thing ever. So I was on a road trip. I think I was like 16. I was on a road trip. Um, on I, I grew up in, in California, but I was on the East Coast with a couple of my friends. We were actually looking at colleges on the East Coast, and we had started in Williamsburg. We looked at UVA, and we sort of drove our way all the way up to New Hampshire. Mm-hmm. And I brought my books and it was, you know, it was like an eight day long trip. And I run out of books by the, like halfway through the trip, because like Kelly, I also read super fast and I bought like, brought like 10 books with me too. But anyway, so my friend was like, well, you know, I just, she was working her way through Shogun, but she's like, oh, I have a couple of romance novels if you want to read those. And I said, sure. So I picked up The Raider by Jude Devereaux and so it takes place during the revolutionary era of of early America. The heroine, her name is Jenny, and she's a maid. At least that's kind of, I'm trying to remember all the details. Her name is Jenny, she's a maid. And the hero is uh, this really, really rich guy who also at night is a privateer. So he raids British ships you know, sabotages their stuff and steals things. Um, but he wants to keep his two identities separate. So (laughs) during the day he wears a fat suit. Okay. (laughs) And (laughs) yes. Um, 
And I don't really remember the plot of this book as much. Like, I remember scenes from this mm-hmm. book. For example, I remember that the heroine loses her virginity accidentally on a bumpy carriage ride. I uh, also remember in this line, again, I will never get it out of my head, and I'm sure the brain space could be used for other things, but the sort of climactic sex scene between the two leads involved the line, he entered her as gently as water lapping at the hull of a boat. Oh, no. Yeah. It's, it's, it's in my brain. I can't get it out of my head. It's still there. I read this book over 15 years ago, and it's still in my brain. I can't get it out. Oh, no. <laughs> um, That's I, you know, like... I kind of... Oh, no, go on. <laughs> I, says, I kind of want to track this book down just to reread it. <laughs> It's all still there, like I remembered it. <laughs> oh my god! I um, have I have a line like that, although it's not from that long ago. But there's just a line from a book that is just always in my head, and I just cringe every time I read it. It just it just oh, and I love the book too, but it just. Ugh. I mean, I have other romance recommendations if you want some, Kelly. Um, yeah. I don't know. So if you like Sherry Thomas, you might like Courtney Milan, mm-hmm. um, also a diverse author. You may... I don't know if you would like her. I like her. Um, not, not Courtney Milan. I love Courtney Milan. I think she's fantastic. There's another author named Laura Kinsale, who, to put it mildly, writes wackadoo plots <laughs> she does she um and she makes it work that's kind of the brilliant thing about laura kinsale is that she has these wild out of left field premises and makes it work the first one of hers i read was for my lady's heart it is set it's a, it's a medieval romance um and it's set and it's written in middle english Oh my goodness, wow. The whole book, yep. And she makes it work. Um, there is a sequel to that one called Shadow Heart that I also read that I also liked. She also wrote a novel called The Shadow and the Star, which is a, about a ninja in Victorian England. I love ninjas. <laughs> um, he is, I think, Hawaiian and Japanese. The hero is Hawaiian and Japanese. And I actually like that because it's very rare you see a hero, a romantic hero of Asian descent in any book. Um, so I, I like Laura Kinsale. As I said, she can be kind of wackadoo in terms of plot premises, Mm -hmm. but I think she's really, really good at characterization and really just making these out of left field premises come together and and really make you believe that they would work. So I recommend her and Loretta Trace. Um, I've only read one of hers. If you like historicals, which I do, I, that's kind of the genre I prefer um Loretta Trace Lord of Scandrels is is really really good if you like kind of difficult like really emotionally complex characters yes please yeah Loretta Chase is really really good at that so those those are my those are my romance novel recommendations um I don't 
typically read them. If you like light and frothy and fun, I also recommend Georgette Heyer, which we had mentioned before in a previous podcast. Mm -hmm. If you like Austin novels and (laughs) want more of the same, who doesn't? Right. Um, Go read Georgette Heyer. It's more of the same. It's light and it they're fun and funny, um, and very like very familiar. If you've read, if you've read any Regency romances. Oh, also, if you like Regency romances, there's another author named Sarah McLean, who I keep calling it the Fallen Angels series, but I don't actually think that's the name of the series. Um, but she had written this quartet about these guys who run a gambling club in New York, or not New York, in London during the Regency area. So these, each book focuses on a different member of this club or a different founder of this club. And they're all really, really, really good. They all, of course, have a secret or some sort of mm-hmm. mysterious past, but I, I highly recommend Sarah McLean's books too. So there you go. A whole bunch of romance novel recommendations, some diverse even. So <laughs> Excellent. All right, that's that's what we're reading. Are you working on anything creative? <sighs> you guys, <laughs> I have signed up for NaNoWriMo this year. Yay! I have signed up for NaNoWriMo in the past, <laughs> several years in a row. Um, only one year did I make any actual attempt at, you know, really doing it. And I think that was in 2011. And it was very short-lived. I don't think I survived week one. (laughs) I am determined to do it this year. I'm going to win NaNoWriMo. And now that I'm telling whoever is out there listening to this podcast, I'm telling you that I'm going to do it. And so now I have some accountability. There are other people out there who know uh, that I'm going to do this. And... um, JJ, you and I were talking about this earlier, but, um, I'm just kind of, I'm just gonna write like a fluffy nonsense thing. I have no idea what I'm going to write. I'm just, gonna, <laughs> I'm just going to open a word document every day and I'm just going to write something and see what happens. Um, I'm trying really hard to get back to my writing. It's been, um, I want to say like five years since I've written seriously and, uh, two years since I've written at all. I mean, at all, no journaling, no fiction writing of any kind, nothing for two years. Um, and I've had a lot of other stuff going on in those two years, uh, but I haven't done any writing whatsoever. And so, um, it's really time for me to get back to it. And I tend to really like overthink things and talk myself out of stuff. I'm, I'm very good at (laughs) self-sabotaging. And in everything in life. Um, and so it's really easy for me to, you know, like toe the line of like, oh, I'm going to try this thing. And then, oh no, there's this reason why I can't do it. And there's other reason why I can't do it. And I'll just, I'll never finish. And I don't have the time to devote to it. And there's too many other things going on right now. And I just, it's just, I'll just put it away and I'll just do it later at a better time. And I'm just, you know, and I'll just make excuse after excuse after excuse. And, you know, this is real life. There are no, you know, there is no optimal time. If I not, if I'm not doing it today, you know, there's nothing to say that tomorrow is going to be any more ideal. Uh, so I just got to do it. So I signed up for NaNoWriMo. I'm on there. I 
spewed out some bizarre list of adjectives and nouns as my story synopsis description thingamajig. Um, so if anyone wants to find me over on NaNoWriMo, I'm there um, under the name Bookish Chick, which is the username I use for everything. Um, so yeah, come cheer me on because I am getting back to writing after a very long dry spell and I feel like I've forgotten how to do it. I do not think it's as easy as riding a bike. <laughs> <laughs> Remembering how to ride a bike, you know, I, I'm, I'm struggling with it quite a bit. So, uh, but yeah, but I'm, I'm working on some writing. Awesome. I mean, yeah, I have, what about you? I have a special place for NaNoWriMo in my heart because that's the book I wrote for NaNoWriMo 2013 is the book that I sold. So for November, we were thinking of doing a couple of you know, writing craft posts, structure, um, you know, inciting incidents, denouements, etc. But, and, and maybe like a, a weekly NaNoWriMo pep, pep talk, mm-hmm. because I do intend to do it as well. I intend to do my middle grade, um, like finish <laughs> it. And because it's a middle grade, 50,000 words should actually be more or less the whole book as to right. only being like 45% of my book. Cause I tend to write long. <laughs> it means it's easy for me to hit my word count goals. It doesn't necessarily mean all of those words will be useful, <laughs> but, um, I think nano drafting during nano is a very different experience than kind of writing at any other time. Yes. Because you need to switch off the hindbrain. So, and, and a lot of people overthink things when they, when they write. And that's, I think what the great thing is about nano is that you just shut that part of your brain off and just write and see where the story takes you. Mm-hmm. So I have a couple of tips for those of you guys who are planning to do NaNoWriMo. Unless you are a consummate plotter or architect, um, I would recommend that you pick a story that is what it's going to sound kind of terrible somewhat wish fulfillment e <laughs> because often those are the easiest stories to write you know there's desires that we all kind of carry these subconscious desires and those are often the easiest things to write about and they don't require mm-hmm. as much planning and thought now if you are a plotter and you want to take the entire month of October to like sit down and plot out your NaNoWriMo book, more power to you. I cannot help you with this process <laughs> because that's not the way I work. But finding a story where there's a, a small aspect of wish fulfillment or fan fiction, mm-hmm. um, like the good fan fiction, I mean, and um, or... Aside from the wish fulfillment aspect, if if you're like me and you're really kind of bad at coming up with plot elements, retelling something is also a good thing to try and do for Nano um, because the story structure is already in place. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't have to be a fairy tale. Uh, most people think of fairy tales as retellings, but it could be anything. It could be that episode of Veronica Mars you saw last week and you didn't like the way it ended, so you're going to retell it. Or a movie that you like 
retelling something that you love, but telling it in your own way is often a really great way to do NaNoWriMo because, again, you do not have to worry about the story or the plot. The shape of it is already in place. Mm -hmm. So then all you have to do is populate it with your own characters. And that's often easier. And that's often why fanfic is really good practice for writing, I think, especially if you're younger. Taking established characters um, and, and writing them to make sure that they're internally consistent and putting them in different situations to see where they would go, like, that's really great practice for writing. Now, you know, some people, you know, after writing fanfic for a very long time, do write their own fiction, but not everybody does, and that's fine, too. If you love writing fanfiction and you want to choose that for your NaNoWriMo project, go right ahead. The whole point is to write. Uh That's it. No judgment on what you write or the quality of what you write, just that you write it. Because the feeling of accomplishment that comes with writing is is huge. So that's what NaNoWriMo is for. That's your first pep talk from me, even though it's a couple <laughs> weeks before NaNoWriMo starts. But as somebody who has won in the past and who has sold the book that she won with, um, you know, I feel like I have a little bit of grounds to um, talk about the nano process. <laughs> but yeah, that, what I'm going to work on from now until and through NaNoWriMo is, is going to be my middle grade novel. Mm-hmm. So do you have any off menu recommendations this week? Off menu recommendations this week? Um, yes, I do. This is not a new recommendation in that I didn't just discover this thing this week. Uh, it's something I've been doing for about a year, but as the weather turns and it's getting colder and, uh, at home, I really want to just be cozy and kind of bundle up under blankets and stuff on the couch in the evening. It's something that I've started to return to again. And that is, uh, grown up coloring books Mm. (laughs) in particular, uh, Joanna Bassford's grown up coloring books. Um, she has three, she has secret garden, um, Enchanted Forest and Lost Oceans, which Lost Oceans just recently came out uh, within the last couple months. And they're just what they sound like. They're coloring books. Um, it's really intricate designs. Each book kind of has a theme. Um, and they're beautiful and it's so relaxing and it's so meditative. And for somebody like me, I am not um, artistic in a way that I can, I can't draw. I mean, I can't draw. I can't, you know, paint. I can't do any of those things, uh, at all with any kind of, uh, success, but I love the process of coloring. It's already there before me. I can just choose colors and fill in the spaces. And in her books, they're really intricate and detailed. Um, you know, and it's really, so meditative. I can just relax and color. And I feel like time just drifts away from me. And it's so, you know, I really struggle with finding time for mindfulness and finding time to stress, uh, de-stress. I find plenty of time to stress, but (laughs) finding time to de-stress in a way that is, uh, accessible to me that I can do at any time that I don't, you know, need to put a lot of effort into, um, is something that I, 
I'm trying to make more space for in my life. I'm trying to find more time to do some actual meditating. I'm trying to find time to return to a yoga practice. Um, I'm trying to make more space for exercise and healthy eating in my life and all of these things. Um, as I get older that I feel like I really want to make this a part of my life and kind of weave this kind of self-care into the fabric of my, my daily life. Um, and coloring is actually a really great way to achieve some of that for me. Um, I love it. And if you go to, you know, I, sometimes I'll Instagram, um, my coloring progress and I'll hashtag it, um, grown up coloring book. And if you look at hashtag grown up coloring book on Instagram, um, there's tons of other people doing it too. A lot of them are using Joanna Basford's books because they really are peerless. Um, so gorgeous, uh, and so high quality, but there are other adult coloring books out there too. Um, or even just kids coloring books that adults are using to color. Um, and so you can follow along with other people and see what they're doing. And it's just, it's just pure enjoyment for me. There's just, there's nothing about it that, um, it, it's, purely a process in which I'm just receiving everything without having to give anything of myself. It's just pure pleasure, pure relaxation. Uh, I'm just, I'm really into it, especially now that it's starting to get colder and I don't want to be outside very much at all ever. (laughs) So yeah, that's my thing. That sounds really, that that sounds really nice. Actually (laughs) adult coloring books. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, as far as off menu recommendations go for me, clearly, as we had mentioned earlier, I am still on my Hamilton kick. Always and forever. Always and forever. I mean, we had this long G-chat conversation this morning just about <laughs> like how amazing Right Hand Man is. It's, so, it's my favorite song right now. I don't have a favorite song. I mean, I, every time I think I pick one, then something else comes up. Of and course. Like, yeah, this one is my favorite. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> um, so nothing new in terms of music or podcasts. Cause last week we recommended blood sucking feminists, mm-hmm. <laughs> but I, um, recently rediscovered a fan comic that I had been reading for a while and sort of fell off bandwagon, uh, before it, if it's called girls next door and the author's kind of username or handle is Pika Lesanique. I'm going to have to give a little bit of background on this. So the comic is on DeviantArt, which is not necessarily the best place to have like a weekly comic because um, it's kind of a, a weird platform in that respect. DeviantArt is a great place if you're an artist, um, is a community to share works of art, mm-hmm. but like something like a comic, which, you know, comes up kind of regularly. It's not necessarily the greatest platform, but that's where the comic had started. Girls Next Door is an offshoot of another fan comic. Basically the original artist, I'm not sure actually the gender of this artist, but the, the username of the artist was Ash Writer. And this artist, I guess, had this sort of like a what if scenario, like, what if Jareth the Goblin King and the Phantom of the Opera from Andrew Lloyd Webber were roommates? <laughs> yes. That's the premise of, of that particular comic, which was called Roommates. Um, and this girl, or this young woman, she's French, and she found this comic and she really liked it. Because in one of the, the Roommates comic episodes, 
Christine from Van of the Opera and Sarah from Labyrinth show up. It's like a Halloween party. And she thought, now that would be hilarious if Sarah from Labyrinth and Christine from Phantom of the Opera were roommates themselves and they lived in the same building <laughs> as <laughs> these two guys who <laughs> fictionally stalked them throughout. Um, and that's, that's actually the genesis of this fan comic called Girls Next Door. And every possible fandom you can think of has had a cameo in this particular fan comic, Girls Next Door. Like, the building Rocky Horror Picture Show showed up. Legolas from Lord of the Rings has showed up. Um, the the Dresden Files guy, what's his name? Harry, Dresden. Harry Dresden? Something? Anyway, Jim Butcher's universe is in there. Terry Pratchett's universe is in there. Um, so it's this huge meta building of every possible fandom you can think of. And it's clearly like every possible fandom mm-hmm. that the artist herself likes, but they're really great. Like initially they're kind of episodic, but it builds into this kind of long story, long arcs about the meaning of, of friendship and, and standing up for yourself and what you want out of relationships, especially as Christine and the Phantom from Fan of the Opera and Sarah and the Goblin King both have very complicated problematic relationships and you know people still love those pairings i mean i do but she uses this comic to sort of explore those things and to not to make them better necessarily or make them unproblematic they still are but she addresses these things head on the characters address them head on they um and they grow and they change um and I, I just really, really love this comic. So that that's my off recommendation, off many recommendation, because I've been reading it fairly religiously for a while, and then because of its deviant art, I hadn't been to deviant art for like six months, and then all of a sudden there's like fifty thousand notifications, and I was like, oh crap, I'm like eight million issues behind. Um, but I, I highly recommend that. So that's that that's it for this week. I'll probably always have some sort of fanish. <laughs> Off menu recommendation. <laughs> uh, okay, um, I think that's it for this week in terms of mm-hmm. our episode. Uh, we have come to the end of our publishing one hundred and one series. Yeah, wow. so we do have plenty of the episode topics planned. We haven't necessarily decided which topic it is we're going to cover yet. Uh, but there's a lot of stuff that we have for you. We have one about. Uh, the much maligned Mary Sue and other fan fiction tropes or mm-hmm. fictional crushes and what makes a great love interest. Um, I have one that's called, that I have very t- proud of the title, Immortal Beloved, the eternal allure of the vampire and other gothic tropes. <laughs> um, of course, the other ones that we had mentioned in our podcast, judging bo- books by their covers, right book, wrong time, meaning books when you weren't ready. Mm-hmm. So we have... A lot of podcast topics lined up, but yep. I don't think we've decided yet what we wanted to cover. No, we're going to see what we feel like talking about next week, and we'll just kind of go from there. So it'll be a bit of a surprise. Yep. That is all. As always, if you want more, please subscribe via iTunes, Stitcher, Podcast Pickle, or your podcast provider of choice. Also, if you like us, please rate and review when you get a chance, as it helps other listeners find the podcast. 
If you want more pub crawl goodness, you can go to our website, publishingcrawl.com, where we have many more posts and articles about various aspects of reading, writing, and the publishing industry. You can also follow us on Twitter at pubcrawlblog, as well as on Tumblr, Facebook, and Instagram at publishingcrawl. You can follow me, Kelly, at bookishchick on Twitter or Instagram, or now NaNoWriMo. Yay! And <laughs> you can follow me, S.J. Jones, that's S-J-A-E-J-O-N-E-S, on Twitter, also on NaNoWriMo as S.J. Jones, and my website at sjjones.com. Our theme music is Quirky Dog by Kevin McLeod, and our logo is designed by Aaron Bowman, publishing crawl contributor and author of Vengeance Road, available now wherever books are sold. If you have any further questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to email us at publishingcrawl at gmail.com or send us an ask through Tumblr. Thanks so much for listening. Bye. Bye. Today's topic is... Publishing process. Okay, we are super professional.